0: Well, I saw a statistic today that uh, was pretty reflective of the program the last fifteen years, and that is, uh, since two thousand five, Nebraska has uh, spent more money in buying out coaches, head coaches, than any uh, any program in, in college athletics. It was like twenty seven million dollars. So oh
1: my gosh! A
0: good, pretty good indication of where uh, the Huskers have been the last fifteen years. And while I think they have the right. Coaches in place to uh, to bring it back to solid ground. It's uh, it's obviously been a pretty miserable experience for, for for quite a while.
1: Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dirk Chatelain, who is a sports writer for the Omaha World Herald. And if you're from Nebraska or the surrounding areas, or you pay attention to Husker sports, he. He's become pretty prominent in his opinion pieces and coverage of, of Nebraska football and other, other sporting activities in and uh, in, in surrounding Nebraska. Uh, we had a conversation about his book and I really think when, when I read this book, it, it relates to me because it, it really speaks to the scrappy nature of a group of people during hard, challenging times in a way that they could bootstrap themselves and figure out a, a way to um, excel throughout those really difficult times in a, in a really challenging era, both race, racially and socioeconomically. And, you know, I, I relate it to where we are at right now in terms of, of a profession, at least loosely, because, you know, we're in a situation with COVID-19 and what's happening with a lot of our practices and, and some of the things that we're having to face is how do we excel in a time where we're faced with challenge after challenge, after challenge. And so this was an inspiring book to me, a great conversation I had with Dirk today. Um, please enjoy our conversation as always be sure to subscribe to the podcast, give us a five star review and support those who support us. to admit that with eight kids it's a real challenge for my wife and I to minimize our environmental footprint. You should see the corner of our driveway every Tuesday morning when recycling and trash is picked up. One of the things I can control is who I partner with. Sustainability is something that matters to us and to our patients and Cooper Vision is committed to it. From executives to plant employees at Cooper Vision, their commitment to sustainable practices is clear. Check out the show links to see how others are incorporating their commitment to sustainabilities in their practice. Thanks again for the opportunity to have a conversation with you about your book Twenty Fourth and Glory. Um, I, I would be remiss for my Nebraska friends if I didn't ask you your opinion on Husker football. So, um, so can we start there real quick? You know, most people across the country aren't going to care about this, but you know, I get an opportunity to. to pick Dirk Chatelain's brain about uh, Huskers, uh, I might as well do it. So, you know, your 30,000 square, 30,000 foot view, what do you think about, about the program and, and where we're headed?
0: Well, I saw a statistic today that uh, was pretty reflective of the program the last 15 years, and that is uh, since 2005, Nebraska has uh, spent more money in buying out coaches, head coaches, than any uh any program in, in college athletics, it was like twenty-seven million dollars. So, oh my gosh, pretty good, pretty good indication of where uh, the Huskers have been the last fifteen years. And while I think they have the right coaches in place to uh, to bring it back to solid ground, it's uh, it's obviously been a pretty miserable experience for, for for quite a while.
1: And and when I heard you talk last time, uh, somebody asked you. Like over under on when do you think we we kind of get back to national prominence and and maybe it is even just a Big Ten championship game. What what are your thoughts about that?
0: Well, I think I might have had a different answer two years ago when the uh, Nebraska's division looked a little bit weaker and Nebraska was bringing in a head coach who was coming off a, an undefeated season and. Uh, I think at that point, had you asked me, I might have said three or four years. Uh, at this point, you know, it might be closer to seven or eight years uh, if it happens. A uh, experience for a lot of Nebraska fans. I think they they anticipated a much more a much smoother ride the first couple of years under Scott Frost, not necessarily contending for championships, but but just uh more improvement than, than they've seen and I think this this offseason in particular uh you know the virus is obviously complicating it but but just it's sort of an odd offseason because Nebraska fans don't really have uh you know there's not really an excuse there's not really an obvious sign of of hope on the horizon it's just kind of one of these deals where you have to to put your head down and, and go to work and uh, hope that you're making enough progress to catch everybody else. But, you know, the, the elephant in the room is is Ohio State University, which uh, makes it very difficult on everybody else in the conference. So I think from that standpoint, it's, it's always going to be tough for Nebraska. But, but first and foremost, they have to worry about catching Iowa and Wisconsin and, and Minnesota.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, probably the biggest. As I reflect on it, you know, and as I get older, and I don't know if you're the same way, but you know, growing up, you and I are about the same age, and growing up, you get to watch the Huskers, and it it is just this epic thing. And our kids don't have that. That's what really is disappointing to me is that they don't see that at all. And and there's probably going to be this entire generation of even my my kids who are you know my oldest son is twelve. Where he 'll never until he 's an adult, potentially based on what you 're saying he'll he'll probably never see Nebraska prominence
0: I think that's probably true, and you know you do sort of lose a generation of kids here that what is the appeal for them to to devote their time and emotion to it i 've got a nine year old who absolutely you know lives and dies with it, but just the the, the series of disappointments that he feels on an almost weekly basis uh, makes it, in my opinion, it's going to make it really difficult for him at 13, 14 to, to come back and say, this is how I want to spend my Saturday afternoon. And honestly, I think that's pretty consistent with where people are across the board. I mean, there's people obviously still love it. They have great memories of it. Uh, it's sort of a, a social tradition. But I do think a lot of people are just – Are just really getting emotionally worn down by the by the disappointment Uh, on an almost on an almost weekly basis at this point. These have been three very difficult seasons for Nebraska.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's tough. All right, your book Twenty Fourth and Glory. To me, um, you know, it 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 seems like as I as I read the book and as I listen to you, I love to listen to you talk about it. But um, as I read the book, it speaks to me of the scrappy nature of individuals collectively rising up together during a tough time to figure out how are they're going to, how they're going to improve. And the result of that is this unbelievable, uh, rise to prominence in many different professional activities of all these guys that had that same sort of turmoil. And, you know, now with COVID-19, I think it speaks even deeper to what's going on with a lot of small business owners, which is a majority of my listeners, um, are small business owners and, 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 uh, And doctors as well. So they're, they're trying to struggle through these things. So I think there's a lot to be gained from your book, but um, there's all obviously a racial component to it as well. So kind of give us an overview of, of the time and, and kind of the impetus to write the book and, and all that kind of stuff.
0: Well, you're absolutely right. In, In a very short amount of time, in a very small area, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, this little place in Omaha, Nebraska—basically one square mile in size—produced uh, one of the greatest generations of athletes. You know that certainly in the Midwest that, that we've ever seen, and obviously in Nebraska that we've ever seen. Uh, and it and it happened, I think, because of circumstance. You know, it was—it's a lesson in uh, a neighborhood coming together and driven, uh, motivated. Supported economically and socially by a, a safety net and together they just kind of pushed each other all the way to the top and it's it's really a remarkable story of it's kind of an underdog story in some ways uh, it's it's certainly a a community story and I think again it's it's what we can do or what communities can do when they really rally together in difficult times so it, it was something that I was aware of growing up somewhat vaguely, I think, you know, that, that Bob Gibson and Gail Sayers and Marlon Briscoe and all these guys were, were roughly from the same time period. Uh, But it was probably about a decade ago, maybe 12 years ago, that I recognized just kind of the power of this story because, you know, these guys rose to world prominence uh, right in the heart of the civil rights era. And I, I, I just was just kind of obsessed with the question of how does that happen? Is it is it coincidental or or not? And I found out that of course it was not coincidental. I mean there were lots of different reasons why it happened. And I was just kinda of hooked. I mean it was everything from from the the packing house culture uh that started in Omaha that produced you know, these well-paying jobs to the work ethic that these kids grew up with to the mentors and coaches in the community. Uh, uh, It was just all sorts of little things that you, you piece them together and, uh, and you produce, you know, Hall of Famers and All-Stars and Pro Bowlers and uh, really from, from a place that, that never should have had that kind of notoriety, but they did because
1: When you talk to, when you talk to, because my understanding is you were able to talk to a lot of these people firsthand and, and even, even maybe some that were, were so much older that kind of secondhand briefly, but what was their, what do you think their drive was? You know, a lot of these guys came back and they're, you know, right now in, in our culture, there is a lot of drive for individual success and individual notoriety. But it seemed like, um, there are some of these guys that came back and they they came back from prominence. They came back from the war and, and their drive was just to help make other kids in the neighborhood better. What what do you think about that?
0: Yeah. The unsung heroes in the story are are not necessarily those athletes who became famous, but it's the, it's the people that came the generation before, uh, people like Bob Gibson's older brother who came home from world war two and sort of, uh, activated or ignited the community around sports. And, you know, you, you touched on it, but there was, I think, a, a drive or a motivation to, uh, to lift, to lift kids up, you know, to make sure that they had a better experience than the previous generation. And, and obviously that's true with a lot of people who grew up in the 20th century and, and the civil rights era. But, uh, I, I just think it comes back to, Sort of the collective, you know the community, uh, I think we've become much more individualistic over the last fifty years, and when I look back on what happened in that in that special neighborhood at that you know that critical time, uh, I just look at a bunch of people who uh who who took pride in each other, who invested in each other uh and of course the the downfall of that community is and, and this is ironic and you know not something that is an intended consequence, but, but when the community uh, broke up because of open housing, because of the riots, because of, uh, you know, a lot of social factors, when it, when it broke up geographically and all those African-Americans dispersed uh, across, across Omaha, they really lost that collective Mm. energy and that collective drive that they had. And, that's not an argument for uh, for segregation by any means, but it is an unintended consequence that when uh you know when North Omaha lost its identity in the late '60s, it became much more difficult for for the black community to rally together and push each other.
1: That that's pretty interesting because I think I think it could very easily be a argument that that people would want to make for you know against. That is, it is that you're saying. I know you're not saying this, but that people would say, "Well, Dirk's a, a segregationist." That's not at all what you're saying. What what no. I think is to the point is that when you see communities really working together well, they have a common goal. Whether it is, uh, in this case, was potentially race, or maybe even more specifically, just situational. You know, you tell the story about how a lot of these guys got to that specific location by. Um, I'll I'll call it fleeing, but it, it may be not that's not may not be the best word, but leaving the South in areas where they didn't have a lot of opportunity and and um, the natural uh, kind of progression to where they're going to be or um, is is with people that are in the same circumstance as opposed to just simply the same race. It just happened to be that the reason that they were in the in with people of the same circumstances because they were all fleeing together. Uh, and, and so, um, I think you see that today with within the, our communities is um, you know specifically where we live. There's a, a group of people that share, share the same kind of, kind of common goals and values and and kind of drive for what we're we're looking for. And it just happens to be that we live in a pretty close knit community.
0: Yeah, it's it reminds me of small towns in some way. I'm from a small town, and you know there's an identity there. Uh, people people really stick together. And oftentimes that produces, you know, success or, or really uh, significant accomplishments. And I think when you talk to people of the generation of the 50s and 60s uh, in North Omaha and, and the black community, the thing that they miss the most is just the organization, the unity that they had together. Uh, and when they lost that, it became very, it became much more difficult to support each other. Hmm. And I'll give you i I'll give you a very sports centric example here, but uh, in the, in the fifties and sixties, there's a there's a park in North Omaha called Coons Park, and Coons Park is a place where all of the great athletes of that era went and played pickup football, pickup basketball on Saturdays and Sundays. And it, it's almost comical looking back. I mean, there would be days where you know you'd have five, six future professional athletes hmm. playing in a pickup game together. And and think about it from you know now if if you're from that area, uh, or if you're in a situation like that and okay, Gail Sayers is ahead of me on the depth chart at Omaha Central.
1: You're gonna go you to Burke. You're going to Burke. Trans-
0: you transfer to West Side or you transfer to Bellevue West or you transfer to Elkhorn South or whatever. In those days, if you wanted to play, you had to beat out, you know, you had to, to get yep. better. You had to beat with Gail Sayers to and so what happens is they just they just pushed each other like crazy. Uh, And and it was a big reason for their success. So I think, you know, it's, there's obviously sports, uh, sports examples of this and more, uh, you know, bigger picture examples of this. But, but that, that loss of connection to each other was, was a big factor in, in why things changed in the late 60s and early 70s.
1: Do you think, I mean, it, I think it also comes back to as I watch like my kids and, and obviously the the stuff that's been going on over the last couple of weeks here with COVID-19 and all the social distancing stuff has, um, has actually made me reflect even deeper about the nature of how we're putting our kids in activities. But, you know, uh, if my kids don't play a, an activity, an organized activity, they don't play. So it, it's like when you and I were growing up, we could get, You know, all the kids in my block. We would play. You know, one night it might be backyard football. One night it might be basketball. One night it might be baseball. And we figured out how to uh, organize the 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 game, how to police the game. You know, if if you're playing basketball and and I foul you, Dirk, you're going to call foul, and I'll say, okay, foul, right? And maybe we get in a little you know argument about it, but ultimately we'll obey the rules and we'll or and we'll move on. Or if we don't, the game's over. So there's something to be said for that. I think in general, what's your perspective on, on where we're going in terms of specialization with kids and, and, uh, and not having them kind of abide by rules and set rules and, you know, all those sorts of things.
0: Well, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I think, you know, this is something that I've been talking with, uh, and I'm sure you do too. You talk to parents about it all the time. And one of the, one of the sad things is, you know, my son will, He'll want to play with a neighbor down the street, and uh, he'll go knock on his door, and that parent says, "Oh, sorry, he's at you know, yep. he's at he's at baseball practice. He's at uh he's at club soccer practice." And now, you know, <laughs> in the social distancing climate that we're in, you you go knock on that kid's door, and he's actually there, and he'll actually play. Yeah. Uh, and I do think that we would be better off if we just sort of uh, took our hands off of it a little bit and let kids govern govern their activities on their own more than they more like what we they did when we were growing up uh, i I would also point out though that a big factor in north omaha's success and i think it's true in in other communities over the years too there was really a trust shared responsibility in raising each other's kids so like you know it was very very common in north omaha to have uh, you know, families working multiple jobs or, you know, dad is, is working a packing house job and gets home and he's exhausted at five o'clock uh, or whatever it might be. And, and people help each other raise raise their kids. I mean, and they, they put a lot of trust in youth coaches and youth mentors. And I feel like now we're we're much more individualistic in terms of kind of living in our own little bubbles, even within our own homes uh where we could probably help each other much more if we put a little bit more trust in uh in our own communities and in, in mentors within that community because you know take take bob gibson's older brother he raised i mean almost uh he was a he was a huge factor in raising you know not only bob but also Uh, you know, the Sayers brothers and Johnny Rogers and all sorts of, I mean, hundreds of kids just through his platform as a, as a youth baseball coach, a youth basketball coach, working through the the YMCA and and the city recreation department. Uh, He just had a tremendous influence. And I I do think that we would be, you know, we would benefit if we, we trusted and uh, shared each other's responsibilities a little bit more as parents.
1: Where do you think, um, as you were researching this book, you, you made a comment of, of sort of the desegre- desegregation of the community. What was the impetus for that, and how did, the, how did all that sort of start to break apart?
0: Well, in the late 60s, uh, it was really a kind of a confluence of factors, economic, social, uh, lots of different things. For example, the the packing and the... The backbone of, of North Omaha for for decades really providing a, an economic stability in that neighborhood well-paying jobs uh, that packing house industry collapsed in the late '60s at the same time so unemployment rises and people are looking for for other jobs and in industries that are not integrated yet uh, so they're they're kind of left hanging while at the same time a lot of the you know a lot of the societal and the social Ills, uh, whether it's you know the assassination of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. or a lot of the riots that were that were happening around the country, uh, all of that kind of comes to a head while at the same time the uh, open housing laws finally pass. so if you are you know take a say you're Bob boozer an Olympic gold medalist NBA champion, instead of living in the neighborhood, you know now you move out to West Omaha. And the impact of that was, was enormous because, uh, as as one person said in the story, in the in the fifties and sixties, if you wanted you know if you wanted a, an internship or mentorship uh, or job shadowing, you know, you just walked down the street on Twenty Fourth Street and you had access to lawyers and doctors and teachers and hmm. you know uh, butchers and and everything else. Everybody was in the same little little community. Again, very much like a small town that I'm from. And when it broke apart in the late 60s, when people went outside of North Omaha, when blacks left the neighborhood uh, in search of better jobs or better better schools, better homes, better neighborhoods, uh, that left kids in the neighborhood, you know, really searching for, for leadership, searching for for that broad menu of, of things that you could do with your life. So you didn't have access to Bob Boozer anymore. You didn't have access to the lawyer and the doctor anymore. And that was a really big hit uh, sort of in, in uh, breaking up the, the cohesion of the neighborhood and also kind of the inspiration of the neighborhood.
1: Is there, are there parallels and stories that you've seen across the country with other sports writers or other people that you know where, um, where the same sort of thing has happened? Or, or this is just the perfect storm of confluence of energy to make greatness and then also the perfect storm that kind
0: of breaks it apart? Well, I do think what makes this story useful is uh, it's specific, uh, it's very, very vivid, and yet at the same time, it is pretty universal. I mean, this is a similar story to what happened in, in major, you know, metros across the country in black neighborhoods across the country. Uh, you know, and it's it's obviously a little bit different from place to place. But the fact that all this was was kind of coming together in the '50s and '60s in the civil rights era, and then in a lot of places, you know, what happened in the late '60s had a profound impact uh, in in sort of breaking up those those neighborhoods in in a way that, frankly, 50 years later, has is still sort of hard to put the pieces back together. And I, you know, again, the for that time period is not my nostalgia. I mean, it's. Right. it's the nostalgia of people who who lived it, who knew what it was like to uh, to be part of a neighborhood that was vibrant and united, and uh, and everybody's working together for uh, cheering each other on, and that just became harder to produce uh, after the late '60s. And again, I keep drawing it back to to my roots in some ways, but it is very similar to, to what's happened to rural America. It's, you know, the the cohesion that we used to feel in, in small town Nebraska. Uh, in, in many ways, that's been broken up too. So I think, uh, you know, it, it's specific to North Omaha. And yet, I think when people read this, they see a lot of their own background in it too.
1: You know, you, you mentioned, because um, I think part of this even comes from the fact that they were they were the only place that some of these kids could find. I want you to tell that story about where they were, where they were kind of packing in the back of a U-Haul or a moving truck and, um, and trying to find games. And the only people that would play them are people from rural, rural communities. Right. And, and you yeah. had a great story about a sheriff and anyway, go ahead and tell that story. Cause I, I love that story in the book.
0: Yeah. It's one of the most, uh, sort of one of the most cinematic scenes I think in the, in the whole, in the whole book, uh, Josh Gibson, Bob Gibson's older brother, starts this little league baseball team in North Omaha, and this is the late 1940s. When if you're starting a, a bad news Bears team in North Omaha, it becomes pretty difficult to to find competition. So, so Josh Gibson would put he put advertisements in the Omaha World Herald. If you want to play my my 11 12 year old baseball team, you know, give me a call at this number and. He'd load these kids up, he'd get phone calls, he'd load them up in the back of a u haul truck or uh <laughs> uh or like an army truck that had the canvas cover on the back uh you know' something you'd see on a mash episode or something like that. He'd take these kids out into the out into the country, often in western Iowa, where they would play these all white teams from little towns of five hundred or a thousand people and imagine you know what it's like being in uh woodbine iowa for instance and seeing this this team of of black kids from north omaha roll into your into your baseball field in 1949 it had to be such an eye-opening experience and you know it it was not in any ways an exhibition because josh gibson uh very much like his like his kid brother was (laughs) was just tenacious in his competitiveness and he was there to win and he would frequently uh if he got a whiff that he was getting cheated by a hometown umpire he would uh he'd storm out of that dugout so fast and go 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 uh face to face with an umpire and there was there's a great story about a an umpire uh I think it was uh, Red Oak Iowa Griswold Iowa and uh you have to look that up on a map but the the town sheriff was the home plate umpire he had a baby mattress for a chest protector and he kept his uh kept his gun in his holster right next to him and he had this terrible stutter uh, where the, the ball would cross home plate and he'd he'd say, Boop boop a strike <laughs> and uh and as the players, you know, tell the story, Josh would storm out of the dugout and go face to face with him. Uh and it's just just uh almost another world that you that you have a hard time, you know, imagining, but it was true and, and Josh sort of created this uh, created a monster where he took this little league baseball team all the way from all the way from the rugged sandlots in North Omaha to these Western, Western Iowa uh, ball diamonds. And he, he lifted this team all the way to a state midget league championship in 1950. It was, Hmm. it was really the first big baseball accomplishment for, for North Omaha uh, winning that, winning that midget league championship. And uh, it, you know, he, they went on to do lots of different things. Obviously Bob Gibson became a, you know, a two time world series MVP and a hall of famer and everything, but it kind of started on those, those bus rides, uh, through the Western Iowa cornfields.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. How did, um, how did Malcolm X's story play all into this? So, so he was well, he was well before. And, and basically if I recall in the, in the book, he was, he would have been, he would have been at this time, pretty much evolving it from Malcolm uh, Little, was his name Little? Last name was Little into into Malcolm X right around that same time in the late fifties, early sixties. Is that right?
0: Yeah. He was becoming very prominent in the late fifties and early sixties. And he, you know, he, he was from Omaha. He was born in Omaha. Uh, When he was a year old, uh, the, the local version of the, the KKK basically tried to drive his family out of town and and eventually did uh his dad was was an activist in mm-hmm. the, the early 20s mid 20s uh and Malcolm you know ended up in in Michigan and uh was sort of became a a militant voice obviously in the 50s and 60s and so when this is you know when when Omaha is developing as a civil rights oasis in the middle of the country in the 50s one of the, one of the, the leaders was, was Malcolm X, you know, a North mm-hmm. Omaha son. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a very strong connection between Malcolm X and, and Ernie Chambers, who becomes uh, a, a very pivotal civil rights voice in North Omaha in the 1960s. Ernie becomes, uh, obviously, a, a state legislator for 50 years. He's still in the legislature now. But one of his early role models or heroes was Malcolm X. And they obviously shared that, that uh, North Omaha connection and spent, spent a little bit of time together when Malcolm came back to North Omaha in the, uh, in the summer of 1964, which was about nine months before he, before he was assassinated. So, mm. yes, I mean, North Omaha is, is, uh, is rich with civil rights connections, but, but nothing more, I think, uh, you know influential than Malcolm X.
1: Yeah. Well, Dirk, I'll be respectful of your time. I um tell tell my listeners where they can get uh, and I'll and I'll link to it as well. Where where can they pick up your book and and have you heated my uh my recommendation to put it on audiobook yet?
0: You no, know, I've been getting that request uh more recently and I think I need to just call up somebody at the university that has a good voice and and say, <laughs> "Hey, you want to make this your uh your your second semester project since you don't have any school going on right now.
1: Yeah, there you uh, go.
0: Maybe somebody'll take me up on that, but but I we're working toward that I think eventually. It's the the interesting part about this whole project has been sort of the 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 shelf life of it, no pun intended, but you know, typically when I produce a newspaper story or even a newspaper series it's uh people are are reading it and maybe talking about it for a couple days and then it's just gone and this has been so refreshing where people are still finding it six to nine months later and uh and hopefully will be for for years uh it's kind of working its way through the omaha school system and it's just been very rewarding but if you do a just a very simple google search 24th and glory uh you can you can find it at our owh store which is uh, where we sell a lot of our, our world Herald produced books and you can probably find it at some local bookstores too, but uh, a Google search will will, should get you where you want to go.
1: Awesome. Dirk Chattelin. Thanks a lot for being on. Appreciate it.
0: Yes. Stay safe. And uh, thanks for thinking of me.